Because this is exactly where I was going this morning uh, in the sermon. We were looking at the story of Israel in three very large successive uh, snapshots or episodes. And so here uh, is one of them in Hosea 11. Hosea 11 begins this way. The story of Israel continues as uh, if we've had the privilege of being here previous weeks, we have been uh, picking up on this story. And the new episode today in Hosea 11 is, the prophet speaks out and says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I came to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaw. And I bent down to them to feed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not rise them, raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel, as a transition? How can I make you like Adamah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. That is Christmas. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. And they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And this is Hosea's prophecy, his oracle of wisdom. Another oracle. Previous, we looked at the oracles of Balaam over this nation of Israel. And here now we see Hosea's oracle over again the nation of Israel. There's a transition from where we read in which he speaks judgment upon them and condemns them, issues his frustrations with them. You've always been going away. Every time I called you, you went further. You're like a small child forgetting that even though now you might be able to walk, there was a time when you could not walk. I was your father who taught you to walk. I cared for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I had you born anew. I was your God. I was your father. And you ignored me. And then... The transition is, you can sense the love, the paternal, fatherly. How can I give you up, O Israel? 
All the things that you do. I am so angry and frustrated with you. But how could I give you up? My heart recoils within me. It's an amazing drama. It's it's an oracle of wisdom. It's capturing a snapshot of human history. Quantified in one people group, Israel. Here is the need to see story. I'd, I'd like you to think, if you know anybody, you might... There's some people you just meet and they're just great at telling stories. I have a friend um, from uh, a few years ago. His name was Tim and he could just tell any story at all. And I still remember five or six stories from Tim. And they're usually always hilarious. And if I were to tell you him right now, I could just go verbatim from his story. He was so good at telling a story. He told me uh, one story, just a random thing about how a man uh, he shared a dorm with because he was in seminary. He was a... Uh, uh, kind of got out of being a, an accountant uh, and, and a later transition in his uh, life wanted to study to become a pastor and so he was in the dorm uh, at, the, uh, at the church I mean at the seminary and uh, there was a he stayed there through the weekend there was a guest a guest um, a speaker who, who was there also had to share a room and he has this amazing story about how the man the man and him shared the same towel that whole week without even knowing it it was just on the same rack. And every time he came back to his towel, he was like, wow, that towel's wet again. And I feel like I just took a shower like 24 hours ago. Why is that towel wet? And he just didn't think anything of it. Well, that went on for like three or four days. And like the way Tim ravels his story, uh, and they find out they both went using the same towel, the complete stranger. It's just a great story, right? And that's the power of stories. They stick with you. They're funny. They're engaging. This This is a story of Israel. And the reason for a sermon series like this is to step back and look and say, what is the purpose of Christmas? What is the story of Christmas? It's the story of Israel. We need stories. They work with climax. The top, the tension of a story is when two immovable facts, two uh, circumstances or some dramatic dilemma is laid to be at the top of the story, the arc of the story or the narrative. And that is the moment. That's the point of the story. You had to take time to get there. You had to build up to the climax. You had to find these two immovable facts or forces or objects that have to hit one another, whether it be in a a, a cinematic cinematic drama, which is just narrative, and and the drama is the dialogue, or you're watching some Marvel um, hero movie where everything's a fist fight and it's always climactic until there's a really big battle. Whatever it is, there's some climax. There's some back and forth. And here's the narrative of where it breaks down for the story of Israel, the story of us, the gospel, stories of all stories, is that we are sinners. We are sinners. And it's really hard for us not to sin. It is so hard. It's almost as hard for us not to sin as it is for God to sin. It's impossible for him to sin. It's very, very hard for us not to sin, even after God's grace has touched our hearts. And that frustration we sense in our lives is only outmatched by God's frustration and absolute holiness and pure light. Yet he, the antithesis, what's going to build to this climax, crescendo, he is so loving. That is setting the course for the story of all stories. That we are wicked and evil, and God is so righteous and good and loving that you just have to watch on the edge of your seat what will happen 
How could this resolve? It's like as if we were to watch Jacob wrestling a man. Who is going to win this wrestling match? And that is our gospel. The one way, the only way that God has chosen to save this world is through a story. The gospel. Think about that. The story, these stories you believe, will either have consequences on your eternity. If you believe any other story, you are condemned to hell. And I mean the story that you believe is the narrative of your life. Why do you breathe? What is your story? Who are you? We all, you have to have a story. You will make one up. You'll find one, you'll identify one. The story you believe will condemn you to hell. Or the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that story, you will have life. It's all about stories. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God. Unto salvation for all who believe. So let's look at this story. It happens through repetition. God loves repeating himself. He's teaching us many things. Our mind has to meditate all the time. You're always thinking. You're always conscious. To be conscious means to be about something. When you lack consciousness, that means you're not about anything anymore. You're not thinking, looking, perceiving. You're not outward focused on something. But the fact to be alive, to be conscious in this life, your mind has to focus on something. It's inherent to living. Therefore, you're going to need a story. You're going to need entertainment. We always are prone to scrolling on our phone and looking and listening. Why I listen to so much stuff when I go to sleep. I need something, somebody to tell me something. I don't want to be trapped within my own thoughts. None of us do. We need a story. You'll find a story. God has given us a story. So we have to train ourselves to preach that story to ourselves every day. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again. We need to talk to ourselves. So what we'll look at today is the story of Israel. The story of the goodness of the grace of God in Israel. And three, three distinct snapshots or episodes of the story of Israel. And it will be through repetition. The idea is that we look at this story as a community and we begin to really identify with it. We see ourselves in this story. The first of the episodes we saw was the first story of Israel is when Israel was not a nation. Israel was a man. Before Israel was ever a nation, Israel was one individual person. And we saw that story in Genesis 32 where Israel... A man named Jacob wrestled another man, a man with no name. And this mysterious man, if you notice, have I mentioned this in the past sermon? Maybe. And we did a sermon on Genesis 32 a few weeks ago. I'm being repetitive on purpose. Pretty tricky like that. (laughs) So the story, the repetition, I mean, put this in our bones. Remember, it builds. He is wrestling a man, a mysterious man. The man apparently has tremendous power. He touched his hip. They wrestled all night. He's exhausted. And he just touched his hip and it's out of place. That man that he was wrestling could have destroyed him a thousand times over. He realizes, that man could have killed me. 
I thought I was maybe winning. And he was just toying with me that whole time. Touched my hip. I can't walk anymore. We realized that he had tremendous power because of all the, uh, not only power, raw power, but justified power is called authority. Right power. Right? He's not a tyrant. He has the right to name Jacob. Who has the right to name anybody? Parents, maybe, get to name children because there's a generative power there. That's my child from my loins, from my womb. So you get to name your children. But some stranger can't walk up to you and say, here is your name. This man had tremendous authority. And he named him. He changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel meaning he who strives with God. And Jacob responds by saying, well, what is your name? And the man, why do you ask me my name? He doesn't give him the name. He wouldn't give him his name. And Jacob's convinced. So he names the place and where he met the no-name man. He says, this place is called Penuel. It means the face of God. But he wanted to stop wrestling when the sun was rising. This mysterious, mysterious man, he's wrestling in the dark. He doesn't see him. He doesn't have a name. He just shows up. He doesn't know what's going on. Before he could see the face of whoever this person was, he vanishes in the night. And Jacob says, I have seen God and my life has been spared. So therefore, the name of the place is the face of God. And it wasn't a dream. Jacob limped the rest of his life. This was a real thing. A real man touched a real hip. For the rest of his life as an old man, he would always be limping to remember that he encountered the living God. And to leave any doubt, later at the end of Jacob's life, we're told in Genesis 35 that God appeared to him. We're clear, it's just God. The scriptures tell us God appeared to him. And he says to him again, your name is Israel. The same one with the same authority to give him that name. And he names himself and says, I am God Almighty. So it is God Almighty who has the authority to name the name Israel. If we're going to have a story on the story of Israel, this would be a good place to start. Where the man's name is Israel. And the one who named him, according to Genesis, not 32, 3510, is God Almighty. Well, that's a great start to a story. What is God Almighty doing with this man? The promise given to Jacob that time, it says, a nation and a company of nations will come from you. Let's fast forward to another episode. Hundreds of years later, Israel is enslaved in an empire called Egypt for 400 years. And then they are redeemed from that slavery. And they walk through the Red Sea. They went down as a very large family. They came out as a nation. They went through the large uh, Red Sea, entering on dry land. And as we saw last week now, if this sounds repetitive, yes. Last week we saw in, in Numbers 23 and 24... This new nation, this young nation just formed 
is beginning to enter in to a very large plot of land that God was to give them. This promised land, we call it. There is a king there named Balak. And Balak was not happy and did not want them to take over his land. So he hired a pagan prophet named Balaam to come and curse this multitude of people. To stand on a high cliff and look over upon all of these almost unnumberable nation of people. And to curse them. To bring bad upon them so that he could defeat them in war. Four times he looked upon Israel, the multitude, and he could never curse them. He only blessed them again and again. And Balaam distinctly said, I have to say this. I cannot curse them because God has not cursed them. And he says, God is not a man that he should lie. He is not the son of man that he should change his mind. Now, isn't that interesting? The beginning of Israel's story starts with a man named Israel who wrestles a man who he thinks is God. And then the nation of Israel is told, God is not a man that he could lie. Or change his mind. If God has blessed this nation. They will be blessed. And Balaam says I can do no more. God doesn't lie. If they're blessed. What am I to say of it? I can't stop the hand of God. These are a blessed people. These people have been wrought by the very hand of God. Therefore they're blessed. And so his spiritual vision. What he sees in these four oracles. That we saw last week. Is that become more and more in tune. More and more detailed. It's like when. I wake up in the morning, I could walk into a wall, no questions asked. Obviously, I'm tired, and that will happen, and you run over to the other side of the room to get the alarm clock, and I'm pretty wobbly on my feet, but the worst part of it is that my eyes are terrible. My eyes are just terrible. If I don't put my glasses on, if I don't put contacts in, it's just not going to happen. I'm terrible. Double blurred vision all around. And then putting on those glasses, everything becomes singular, one point. But when you see the oracles that were given... To Balaam, it starts off general. He says very clearly in a multitude of Israel. He speaks about them being coming out of Egypt. They were coming out with the power of a lion. He speaks of the whole multitude. But then later in the oracles, he says he sees one individual king who comes out of Egypt with the power of a lion. Which is a very weird thing to say. He said, there's a king who came out of Egypt... With lion-like victorious power. Because when Israel came out of Egypt. They did not have a king. They did not have a king for many years. When Balaam says in the last of it all. This will happen in the latter days. I had to put very good glasses on to see that far. It will happen in the latter days. There will be a king to come. One king out of Israel. And you think all the blessings of Israel. And for us as a church are wrapped up into God's pure and good promises, which are true. Because God is not a man that he could lie. Therefore, you're blessed. If it were that simple. And the very next thing after Balaam's story is cursing. The king, Balak, could never get to Israel and curse them. So what he did is he subverted them. 
He did cultural subversion, the things um, very akin to what people were doing in the Cold War era, and of course today, the KGB, they would come in to various uh, nations, they would demoralize the nation, they would come in and subdue the nation without even firing a shot. Right? That, that's very similar to what happened there, because Balaam goes to the nation of Israel after he realizes he can't curse them, and he offers them the sacrifice of food that they would bow down to their God, Baal. The God of Canaan, the God of the land, the God of, Baal is called, the God of rain, the God of dew, the God that gives you productivity and prosperity in this life. And it says, right after God protected them, four times from a curse, right after God protected them from any bad coming upon their head, it says in Deuteronomy 25.3, Israel yoked himself to Baal. A plague came, they were cursed, a bunch of people died. See the power of these stories. The point of these stories is to find yourself in them. To find us as a church in them. Realize this. We are blessed in Christ because we are blessed in Christ. The only way that can be messed up for us as a church is if we allow sin in our camp. It's not the enemies outside the church that are a threat. It's the ones inside the church that subvert the church. And it usually always happens through sexual perversion is the beginning. That is, that is, see, culture and cult. Cult means to worship. Culture is the stuff you do with your hands to manipulate the world and make a thing called civilization. Cult always precedes culture. What you worship produces your culture. Culture goes downstream to politics. Now, they could not get to Israel. There was no way to curse them. There was no way to undo them went straight to worship and took away their worship, altered their cult, their cultus, their worship, and then subverted their whole culture. And that is it. That is the story of stories. That was the rest of Israel's history for the next 700 years. Nothing more than being tempted by one particular God called Baal. To worship this God instead of Yahweh. Or to worship this God in place of Yahweh. Or with Yahweh with the different name of Baal. Syncretism. And bring it all together. And it had everything to do with culture and sex. And if you think that's not important for us today. It very much is. There is a man named uh, Herbert Marcuse. And he lived uh, from 1898 to uh, 1779. You might have heard of him. Uh, you, 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 in the news cycle now, people talk about critical race theory and all these things. Um, he was the guy that started it all before, we, it was, before it was on Fox News. He, he was the guy that was thinking all this stuff. Um, he, they couldn't curse Israel, but what they did instead is they decided to cause Israel to perform sexual immorality so that they could destroy them. But I thought, as Americans, we're like, sexual freedom and liberty, it's just about love. It's, it is for most, most people that just live in a, in, a, in, a, in a modern world and think of sex that way. 
but there are uh, pagan prophets alive today, Marcuza and the like. They're very intelligent. Um, see, Balaam couldn't curse him, but we're told later in Numbers, he said, I can't curse him, but you know what? If you can get him to worship your God and commit sexual sin, uh, you can destroy them. Later on in Numbers, he says that. So uh, most people think sex and cult, like, culture is just about free love and all these things. Marcuza was a communist that understood that Marx was wrong. It's really not all about money. Money is not power. Sex, culture, the ideas of society is how you control things. And so it's funny that he wrote a book and he put these two together. He called it Eros and Civilization. Eros is erotic love, sex, and civilization. The first was the front door. The second was what he wanted. He wants to control civilization. He wants to bring down Christendom, the Christian idea of a Western culture that generally is acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. Bring that down through the front door of Eros. Sex. Four times no curse could ever fall on Israel. Balaam tried. There was a lot of money for him to do it. I will try to curse them. I can get well. Can't do it. Just have them go do weird sex stuff. And that's it. They crumbled. Plague. A plague. A plague. Have you ever heard of a plague before? COVID. It all came on them. All interpreted as God's judgment. God would never judge them. But it's the enemies inside the people of God. It's those who actually subvert. You can't break down the shields, the fortress, the buttresses of God's blessing upon you. So you dig under the walls and come on the inside. And that is the story. The Balaams of the world. Normalizing all of these things and only took another 50 years before now it's actually normal. The things that were written in this book, Eros and Civilization. Dare you say it was prophetic. Dare you say he was a pagan prophet of old. Our story as a church is wrapped up in this story. And that's why we tell them, you need stories. Life is repetitive. Knowing how it goes, seeing the beginning from the end, knowing the faults, and knowing the mistakes. And here we are then, to see the third episode today in Hosea 11. Now, it was 700 years later from when Balaam tried to curse Israel. 700 years later. Put that in perspective. How old is our country? Multiple generations of Americans. The whole nation of who we are as a people. 700 years now. Israel is an older nation. And the verse starts off and says this. When Israel was a child, back when you weren't 700 years old, back when you were brand new and you had that new nation smell, like they're out of the car. Back when you were a child, I loved, I loved you. I loved him, he says. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. As a son metaphor, Israel was like a baby. And the water broke. Israel came through the womb of Egypt. The water broke right in half for them across the Red Sea. They came out on the other side, a new babe, literally called here the Son of God. My son, Israel, my son, I bore you out of Egypt. 
And then he goes on to describe in, in narrative, of course, the reality is that I was teaching you to walk. I walked you through the wilderness. I fed you manna from heaven. I fed you every day. You didn't work for anything. You were a baby. You couldn't take care of yourself. I loved you. I loved you. And Israel comes through the Red Sea. And like individual Israel, this nation of Israel has always been striving. The more I called, Hosea says, the more I called to you, the further you ran away. Isn't it amazing? The first time a toddler learns to walk. It's almost from that point, it's called the terrible twos, because that level of freedom, never mind, they are not even cognitive of the fact that you have cared for them, fed them, slept them, burped them that whole first two years or year and a half until they really become mobile. And then the second you should say, by the way, the one who's fed you your whole life so far and taking care of you every moment, come here, please. Boom, gone. Just, I can walk now. Why would I come to you? <laughs> That's, is that not a beautiful image of your heart? That is us before the Lord. This is a nation before God. I called to you and you ran all the farther. You wouldn't come back to me. And I'll think of this. How old are you? How many years have you been following Jesus? I doubt no one here has followed him 700 years. Do you realize? After the curses could not fall upon them, they started worshiping Baal. And here in Hosea, Hosea 11, verse 1, 700 years later. Verse 1 says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. 700 years later, they are still toying with their same sin. You need to hear that again. 700 years later, they are still toying with these same fickle little false gods. And his heart is recoiling within him out of love for their almost a millennia of rebellion. And he still loves them. How amazing is this gospel? Do you ever doubt his love for you? He has not toyed with you for 700 years. Some of you might have only been following Jesus for five years or ten, and no one here has passed a century. And his heart recoils, his stomach turns that you would come to him. And every one of your sins, he would remember no more. How amazing is this image? That even after all that time, there's so much for Hosea to say, to try to woo them back. Come to me. I love you that much. And so this is the story of all stories. As we say, there's a climax here. We are so sinful and rebellious. And he is so loving. And you wonder, well, how will it resolve? 
Will we do this forever? Is history always bound to repeat itself? Will there be progress? Will there be a move to the city of God? Will we go to salvation? Will we approach the light for the first time in our life? And the repetition is almost bound up into it. You can see it here in the text in which the old sin of Baal produces the same result again. Verse 5. Shall not, you shall not return to the land of Egypt. I'm not going to put you in slavery again with Egypt. Now you're going to be enslaved by Assyria. How much, so much for, for narrative progression. When you watch the same episode over and over again, you think, I've seen this one before. This is the story. Baal, 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 sin, rebellion, rebellion, slavery, Egypt. I'll change it up. The Lord says, and I'll send you to Syria. Out of frustration, you can tense the the tone and the prophet's voice here. And he says, my people are always returning away from me. And then the pivot is, verse 9, I will not execute burning anger. Burning anger of God is the unredemptive anger. It is just pure, scorched earth anger. And he says, I won't do that. Because you can't do that. There's this thing called Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't remember Sodom and Gomorrah. They're outlining cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities were called Adamah and Zeboim. And so he says clearly, I cannot give you up. How can I give you up, O Israel? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? I cannot make you like Adamah. I cannot make you like Zeboim. You would not know the name of those cities unless they were in this text. They are forgotten, scorched earth under God's judgment. They are in the dustbin, the ashes of history because of God's wrath. And he says, I cannot do that to you. I cannot destroy you. You are my son. I taught you to walk. I brought you forth in life. I cannot give you up. How amazing is that gospel? He, the climax of the story, realized you are in this story now. That he is saying that about you. You are working toward the ark. The climactic narrative of saying, how could he ever tolerate me again? How could he ever accept me again? He is that loving. How can we build up to that climax? And the beauty of it all, as we close here to see the actual solution, the resolution that's given to us, it is an amazing resolution. It has everything to do with Christmas. How can I give you up? I've taught you to walk. My heart recoils within me, he says. My heart recoils. If you've ever lost a child for a minute or five minutes, you know that feeling. You're at the amusement park, you're at the mall, you're at the grocery store. You turn, they're not there, they're too young to not be there. Where are they? Are they next aisle over? Are they next three aisles over? Are they in the parking lot? Are they in someone else's car? Right there, that, that there, that feeling where your heart feels wound up like it will explode unless you find resolution now. Where is my son? Where is my daughter? 
If you understand that feeling, this text is for you. Then you say, oh, he loves me like that. He wants me back like that. He cannot eat until I come home. I am the prodigal son. This is what Jesus was saying all along. So how is God going to resolve this? Are we just always going to be exiled in Egypt, in Assyria? Is he always going to push you away? Is he always going to have to bring judgment upon you because of our hard-heartedness? Notice the repetition of the story. In Balaam, he says, God is not a man that he can lie. Therefore, I speak only blessings on Israel. And then here in Hosea, he says, the prophet speaks on behalf of God and says, I am God and I am not a man. Anyone else that has been wronged and abused like me would have let you go years ago. And you're now at 700. I have been toying with you as you have been toying with these idols and I am not a man. You think you can exhaust my love. You think you can win at your rebellion. I will win. I will love you. Not like any man. I will love you with a boundless love. And you will submit to my love. And you will love my love. I will win you with my love. So God is not a man that he would lie to his promise to bless you. Even though we have no reason. And we prove every day why he should not bless us. And the accuser, Balaam himself, or Satan, could always rise up at any moment, in any day, and say, there is no reason for them to be blessed. I have seen them this day. And at the same time, God became a man so that he might remain true to his promise. God is not a man that he is limited in love. But God became a man so that he could show the limitlessness of his love. That he would redeem us. And this is Christmas. And so, when our Lord enters the world to save you and I, Matthew begins by saying, Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. It was about him the whole time. Wrestling with a man, not a man that I don't lie. I'm not a man that I don't love fickly or limitly. It was all coming to this point. From the beginning of the wrestling match, it was always about this. But he will show you. He will advance the narrative. He will beat the climax. The source of it all is God will save you. And on your worst day, you will be saved. Let's pray as the kids come in. Dear Father, Lord, this narrative is true. This is the story. The repetition is essential. Every seventh day is the Lord's day because we are foolish sheep and we need reminded of your truth. We are reminded of this goodness. Lord, we are riddled with anxiety and guilt and all sorts of problems that accumulate to us by walking through this dirty world or because of our own sins and faults. And Lord, we come here for cleansing. Lord, this story must be said. Lord, this story is our story. It is all about you, Lord Jesus. We we at this moment, Lord, pause to worship you. 
and in our hearts, earnestly, sincerely, we love you. We thank you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.